Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Dr. Robert Silverman, we gotcha. The busy guy sits down and uh, joins us for a very interesting podcast. We talked about some topics offline, so um, I think we better we better jump right into it. I know you got a book coming out, but I'd love to know uh, about your unique medical practice there in New York and actually the, um, the sensitivity you have here because you're so close to uh, the you know the coronavirus uh, epicenter. Yeah, I am. I'm, uh, I live two miles from where the epicenter started in Westchester County, and I'm 30 minutes outside of New York City. I grew up in New York City, and so we're in the front. Westchester's that small, well, not small, but it's the first suburb, so all my patients work in Manhattan, so very sensitive. I've been doing a lot of antibody tests. About 20% of the patients have antibodies to COVID-19. Uh, we've been back at work for the last few weeks. So we are without question, everybody has to come in the rule of the house, not my house, but the rule is they have to come in masked. All my staff is masked. I'm wearing a mask, gloves, and I'm actually wearing a shield because with the functional medicine, we have patients that have autoimmune conditions. So we want, I want them to feel more comfortable that we took the necessary uh, steps. In addition, every room is sanitized after every use one patient at a time we limit the space in the office so it's just two rooms not so it's dispersed so anybody who's i know it sounds nuts uh scared of uh air droplets we limit it and uh, we're doing everything that we can but it appears that you know for us the curve has really not only flattened but gone down oh that's nice to hear and what what do you mean when you say uh 20% of your patients have the antibodies so what does that represent that's a great question. So we did a lot of antibody testing because we were home for a little while. So we connected with a company to do antibodies. So there's two antibodies that everybody tests for, IgM and IgG. So if I had this graph, if I could make this visual graph here, what happens is that um, you get, in, assuming you get infected with COVID-19, the average person doesn't see any symptoms for the first five days. 35% of people never see any symptoms. But at about day five or 5.1 to be exact, the symptomology becomes apparent. And the symptomology is fever, cough, and in some very uh, more advanced instances, dyspnea. At day seven, one of your antibodies comes out, which is IgM. That's your initial antibody. It's not as potent. In day seven, it spikes up and goes through to day 21. At day 14, day 14, you've got this antibody called IgG. And it spikes up and goes through day 28. IgG is a much more potent. It's a smaller antibody. It's small enough to pass the placenta on a woman. And the IgG is very potent in that it blocks the docking station at the ACE2 receptors. So COVID-19 can't come in there. So you want to get tested for antibodies. You want to see yourself to be negative for IgM, meaning you passed it, and positive for IgG. So you have your own natural antibody. So essentially, you've been infected, you've built up your own autoimmunity. Remember, this is a novel virus. Our immune system has never seen this genome before. So our body has to now attack it, recognize it, and memorize it. Those immune systems like yours who exercise all day, lead a keto life, probably have an immune system. If they see it, they're going to respond favorably. 
Others who have these comorbidities, diabetes and the such don't respond as well. And that's where that failing health becomes. It's very simple. I tell everybody, your immune system is like you. If you studied and done your critical thinking, when you get something new, you'll respond quickly and probably quite well. If you haven't and you're not prepared and you get this new thing, you're going to stutter, you're going to feel uncomfortable, and you're not going to have a good outcome. That's what happens to you can memorize what you have to do. Same thing. And that's a problem. So a victim who gets taken down and is severely ill or, 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 or dies from the COVID-19 virus are they not making the antibodies at all or are they going to test are they going to test for them but they're not responding well because of the, the comorbidities and all that what's interesting so a couple of answers to that the comorbidities and and the big comorbidities that we talk about is age and of course that's biological age versus <laughs> chronological chronological age that's number 1 but you get immunosenescence so your immune cells die your thymus theoretically doesn't work at 70 somebody again like you doing the keto lifestyle exercising you're changing that dynamic so that's one age is you know something that we can't change on our date of birth but we can definitely change our biological age some of the other ones are obesity and within obesity it's truly the visceral fat and not the superficial fat. So the visceral fat is the fat which is highly inflammatory, which lays over your viscera. So again, to point to what you do, an endurance athlete with some explosion, you're probably not going to have a lot of stored visceral fat where because your diet has to be such and it's long-term exercise. So more so than the obesity, it's the prediabetes, the diabetes, the blood sugar, the cardiovascular disease, the hypertension, and the autoimmunity are methods that lead you down a path of get one higher susceptibility more compromised immune system and two once you get it you get a bad outcome i'll give you a little factoid 300 calories of sugar decrease your immune system for two hours by 50 percent don't eat your frappuccino while covid19 is out there right i'm uh, i'm thinking of some follow-up questions that might not be the most um, sensitive or politically correct, but I guess I'll just throw it out there. One of them that comes to mind is that, um, is this a, uh, a massive overreaction uh, with healthy people having to shut down their economic contribution and all these things? Should we just uh, be maybe focusing on the people of the highest risk and isolate them and, and uh, quarantine them or self-quarantine, obviously. It's not, I'm not talking about a military state, but um, it, it seems as though uh, I'm not up on all the numbers, but it seems like a lot of the victims are coming in with comorbidity factors to the extent that uh, we, we should sit down and talk about it more so than we, we hear. All we're hearing on the news is, um, you know, sneeze and, and uh, make sure you have a mask and, and wipe off your uh, car door handle. I just saw an article in the New York Times saying that the, um, the surface contact is oftentimes not enough to, to hit that viral load to, to even infect you. So here we go. Dr. Silverman's going to haul off. It's, uh, it's unplugged, unplugged podcast. What do you think, man? Well, I think the viral load is huge. So, the, and that, you know, I call you're a biker. So um, I'll, I'll say like guys in push-ups. So 10 push-ups for you and I and most people that we know, not a problem. That load may be too much for people. Yet, if we ask for 500 push-ups consecutive, we're probably all going to falter at some point up to that. You know, um, if they say, Rob, ride a bike for 10 miles, probably could and I wouldn't like it. If they asked you to do it, you'd look at me and go, come on, man, that's not even a walk in the park. That's backwards walking. 
It's easy. Um, as far as those who have the comorbidities, I will say this. Without question, we have seen the underbelly of America's health and that our problem is Americans are not healthy. And we have too many comorbidities. Six out of 10 Americans um, have one comorbidity. 75 Six out of 10? Six out of 10. Oh, mercy. 40% have two. Okay, so I guess we do have to quarantine. Um, We have to shut the economy down. I mean, six out of 10, that's... And those are the ones... have one comorbidity. You you mentioned them as um, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure. Diabetes, uh, obesity, obesity. Um, goodness gracious, neurodegenerative disease, autoimmune. And I didn't get to the real comorbidities, which would be like a leaky gut. And mm. he, okay, so 75% of Americans are either overweight or obese, 75, three out of four, and only 12% of Americans, 12, have metabolically healthy active systems. That's one in 7.5. The number one reason that people got hospitalized from the age group of 18 to 65 was obesity. Number one reason over 65, hypertension. So, I mean, I'm, I'm 18 to 65, unfortunately close to 65 and 18, though I like to think I'm 18. 18 to 65 in America was obesity. I mean, I think that's enough said. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't close down. Oh, we should have closed down. I'm just saying that if we were healthier and we did some of the things that they said with the social distance and, uh, you know, how many times have we gone into a laboratory and seen somebody use a laboratory and not wash their hands and figure, ah, I didn't wash his hands. He was in a rush. <laughs> how are we looking at that individual now? When was the last time we walked into chiropractor's office and they had gloves on? We're all going to be wearing gloves. Right now, it's all about health. When was the last time we talked about diet? Now, I, I, I know you're a big keto guy. I would ask you how many people who follow the keto and the clean keto would be obese or have visceral fat as compared to those eating the Western diet or the standard American diet? Not many. How many bikers? I, I do CrossFit to stay in shape. I used to play basketball less. So we see all those ex-athletes and we go, why did they get so heavy? They're not playing anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big one. I mean, uh, there's, you know, some good science that's being popularized now. Dr. Jason Fung, the obesity code, uh, enjoyed the way he presented this, that uh, it's almost entirely diet and insulin production uh, as as what's your factor for having excess body fat or not. And so there are a certain percentage of active people that still carry excess body fat because their diet's terrible. You can't out-exercise a lousy diet. And you set the example of keto. And I think um, we get so controversial in the diet world and the the whole food plant-based people are very strong and passionate and arguing in favor of uh, an entirely different direction than the ancestral primal approach. But they all have something in common, which is a departure from that nasty standard American diet baseline of chowing down the refined sugars and grains and industrial seed oils. Well, let me piggyback on what you just said, because I utilize keto in my office. Now, we can talk about genetic markers and if every individual can absorb saturated fat, which would be the highest level. But let's talk about what the Western diet is, exactly what you said, refined sugars. 
Sugar works with the reward center in the brain. When mice were offered sugar, 94% of mice took sugar over cocaine. Sugar is deleterious to overall health. There is no essential carbohydrates. There are essential fats and there are essential amino acids. So I tell my patients, when you're not sure, fat and protein are a better choice than carbohydrates and something else. Not to say that fruits and berries don't have their place. They do. Studies have been shown that athletes for both endurance and power are better suited as long as they're burning those ketone bodies and burning fat as ketones and they've gone through the ketogenesis cycle as versus carbohydrates. And it was the marathon runners who did that carbohydrate learning, which makes no sense because it's only 2,000 calories. And as well, you know, that's not enough for any kind of long-term endurance. It's great if you want to go bench press, but is it really? Because fat is 2.25 times more energetic than carbohydrates. And of course, good quality fat. We're not talking of trans fats and the fats that are most targeted for you. So I've taken my genetics and found out that I'm not great with saturated fat. Okay, but all the other fats work well and there's still protein and you know I can have some carbohydrates if I don't want 6% body fat. Yeah, I like the way you put that in the athletic example that we've been obsessed with carbohydrate loading, carbohydrate replenishment, and it's kind of like uh, topping off a tank and then the rest of the gas tank is inaccessible, the, the, the fat stores on the body. And we've just been, you know, circulating through this uh, frequent small meals, uh, energy bars, energy gels, drinks, and um, it, it makes no sense, but it took, you know, decades and decades to wake up and uh, the, the science helped, you know, the faster study that you referenced where the, the high fat people were able to, they were still able to replenish glycogen, even though they didn't consume carbohydrates, fascinating insights like that. But finally, we're getting to that point. But boy, the battle's tough to fight because of the cultural programming. Absolutely. And you know, you also have to train to eat the carbs because once you go over 60 grams of carbs, which is 240 calories, which isn't much, if you haven't trained your gut, you're not going to absorb it. So, but most people don't train. They just say, oh, I'm just going to do carbs. So if you're going to train, you're still better finish all if you train to take fats. Again, you can always go to your genetics, but I have to tell you something. People aren't really finding out they're good carb burners. They're finding out that they're good fat burners. And again, the studies that you talked about were great in that when I initially saw the keto, I, I, did, I thought it would make sense for an endurance athlete because it's stored. What is it? 40,000 calories you can store in fat and only 2,000 stored in carbs. I mean, let's be real. Do Look at that. That's 20 times. The numbers speak volumes. And what happens after you take the carb in? The sugar drops, you drop. And what's more damaging to your gut? Carbs. Sugar is damaging to your gut. So if you want good gut health, you want to absorb your nutrients, you don't want to pull your blood in your stomach. Fat and good quality fats are a much better choice. And why does autophagy work? Why does intermittent fasting work? Because you've made the switch from carbohydrate burning to fat burning. And let's talk about that impact. I know you're really big on gut health. That's a fundamental part of your practice, your upcoming book, The Super Highway to Health. Uh, talk about how sugar is, is so damaging to gut function and what's going on there uh, with, this, with this concept that I think most people I speak to, it, it's a big deal in, in uh, cutting edge progressive health circles, the, the gut microbiome, but most people out there on the street, they're, they're going a little bit blank when you talk about your gut health. 
80% of your immune cells are in your gut. It's where your macro and micronutrients are absorbed. And it makes so much sense. When I've asked the gurus, and one of note, the father of functional medicine, Jeff Bland, I said, why did they put all our immune system in our gut? And he goes, it really makes perfect sense. The bulk of the pathogens come from what we're eating. So even good food has pathogens. So why not put it there? Why not ensure that it goes there to decide what goes to your body and what gets expelled out? We're worried about about getting sneezed on while we're slamming donuts. It's funny you say about the gut. I'm going to just divert when you talked about it. So interestingly enough, we talked about obesity. We talked about hypertension. We talked about diabetes. We talked about um, neurodegeneration. All of them can be attributed to the gut. When COVID-19 was studied, 53.4% of the people who tested positive for COVID-19 had the virus in their stool. 23.4 had it when they were testing negative. You will shed the virus 28 days after the abatement of fever in your stool. So if you really wanted to take the right test, the test would be the swab to see if you have it right now, the autoantibodies to see where you are with your immune system, and you would take a poop test to see if you're shedding, because if you're shedding, obviously you have to tell everybody at home, we've got to make extra careful cleaning of the bathroom because it's fecal oral. So people say, what are you worried about? I said, I'm still wearing gloves. Why? I'm going to wear gloves on a plane because when I go in the bathroom, I'm going to be able to throw them away. I'm certainly going to clean because of the fecal oral transmission. Obviously, it can be on my hands. I have to do this. But people don't realize that the droplets are easy because these are open. Mm-hmm. But fecal orally transmitted, it is. And by the way, those ACE2 receptors are plentiful in the gut. And there's a direct gut, this is 2021, gut to lung axis. So we know gut, we know gut to brain, and we also know gut to lung. I don't want to push it too much. We'll circle back and get back into your gut. But the centerpiece of your health, the centerpiece of your performance is your gut and your gut communicating with your brain. How does it communicate with the brain? It's funny, I get to ask that question all the time. It's three ways. Number one, what passes your gut and goes into your bloodstream, the nutrients, that's number one. So it's, it's bloodstream. Number two, hormones. Many of the hormones come from your gut to your brain. And number three, and maybe the most important one, it's called the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. It goes from your brain stem, medulla oblongata, down through your transverse colon, attaches to the outside of your transverse colon. It's actually 80 to 90% sensory. So it senses what's going on inside your gut and all the signals and communicates with your brain that quick. So it's interesting. So people eat a pizza pie and they'll go, oh, and I'm like, whatever your gut feels, your brain feels. Do you get gas and bloating after you eat? Yeah, I do. Do you know why you don't have any pain? No, there's no pain fibers in your gut. Are you, are you lethargic after you eat a bad meal? Yeah, you know, I get a brain fog. Well, why fog and no pain? What? No pain receptors in your brain. Whatever you do to your gut, you do to your brain. Whatever you do to your brain, you do to your gut. And as an athlete, which you are an elite athlete, that's a critical takeaway. So at the higher levels, the pro athletes who come in, after we fix the problems, their movement problems, any systemic problems, They've got to, at some point, adhere to the concept of they have to keep themselves in good, good health. That's why I change their diet. That's why I emphasize gut. 
And they found out that if they improve their gut health, they improve their performance. Djokovic, he wasn't my patient. Djokovic is a great example. Got rid of gluten and look at all the grand slams he won. And he's in the top three to five greatest tennis players ever. Never won a grand slam before he went gluten free. <laughs> the gluten free grand slam. So the vagus nerve is going from the brain to the gut. Uh, right. When we get nervous before it's time to give our speech, we feel the butterflies in our stomach or you're in love and you have these sensations in your digestive tract. And that's an, a good, valid example of the gut-brain connection. Correct. Correct. That's a great example of your gut-brain gut connection. Uh, tell me about the serotonin. Uh, I've heard these stats that most of it's made down in the, in, in the intestinal tract, the important brain neurotransmitter. 93% of your serotonin is made in your gut. Your amyloids, when people are so concerned about Alzheimer's, are made in your gut. Leaky gut gets from your gut to your brain, pierces your blood-brain barrier. Your gut and your blood-brain barrier are made up of the same proteins. They're both single-layer epithelial cells. They have the thickness of a wet paper towel. Your blood-brain barrier is interesting in that it filters 400 miles of arteries. Your gut is interesting in that it has a different lymph system than your brain. But structurally, they're the same thickness. And your brain's only three pounds made out of jello. However, if something passes your gut and gets into your bloodstream, you now have the different legs of your immune system to attack it. If it passes your blood-brain barrier, all that it has to feast on is brain tissue. Hence the idea of the gut-to-brain actions being critical for neural degeneration. Uh, you said the brain weighs, weighs three pounds? Three pounds. Okay, and mine was, mine was weighed at 3.9, so I was just curious what the average, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dr. Rob, you're the, um, you're the stat man. I love this show. I'm taking all these notes. I mean, 93% of the mood-elevating hormone neurotransmitter serotonin made in the gut. We are, we are tight. We've got to get that connection right. And you mentioned briefly uh, the impact of sugar on it harming the gut and causing all these downstream problems to our, uh, our, our brain function and other areas of health. So can we get into that a little bit? Absolutely. I want to give you another factoid that I think you'll like. The brain is 60 to 7% fat. So who woke up and told me to consume carbohydrates to fuel it? Because I want to know. Because when I was playing basketball, they, you know, I don't think I was going to be Michael Jordan anyway, but maybe I would have scored a few more points in college at my little school. So when you think about it, it's made out of fat. So what, what better choice to fuel it? You know, Alzheimer's, you know what that used to be called? Diabetes type 3. Oh, I thought that was a new uh, novel nickname that's catching on and, and so important to reflect upon that, uh, that, that strong connection between your diet and the, um, uh, the cognitive decline. It is a diet and your cognitive decline. A lot has to do with your gut and your cognitive decline. So they just had a study that came out that 50% of the issues from Parkinson's come from your gut. So it would be fair to say that any neurodegenerative disease, you would benefit from also addressing gut health. Any gut issue, you should also address brain health since they're communicating in milliseconds. Uh where do we stand in mainstream medicine with these concepts? I know it's been almost entirely ignored for uh, decades, centuries since the advent of Western medicine. Uh, but now you can read articles, there's books, there's guys like you who are promoting the heck out of this and, and hands-on with patients. But if you walk into the, uh, 
the ER or your, your family medicine checkup, um, how are we doing with uh, the gut health importance catching on? You know, it's not moving quick enough. There is a small growth. It's unfortunate. Um, I just had a patient come in yesterday. Uh, old patient of mine, they want to do some alternative. They have ALS. So I sat down with him. He's got great doctors at two respective universities in different states. Fabulous. He was going to an integrative doctor. The integrative doctor gave him nothing for gut and nothing for brain, but he gave him a plethora of other supplements. I looked at him and I said, I just want you to change three things before you come back. Very simple. No gluten, no dairy, no sugar. If you take those three things out, I'll be very happy, even if it's one at a time. And he looked at me and he's like, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm serious as a heart attack. And he's like, I won't even ask why. Do you understand that I was told to keep my weight on? I said, I think they mean keep your muscle mass on. They didn't phrase it well. So that's like, there's a little bit of a parlance issue there, but that's not a problem. And he's like, yeah, but cheese, I eat cheese all day. I eat grilled cheese. He said, sugar is in everything. And they told me to eat for my condition, milkshakes to keep my weight on. And I'm just like, so it's carbs, sugar, and dairy. Maybe <laughs> all together in the same meal. The bread in there. And I, and I said to him, here's the list. You don't have to listen to me. Just go Google. Here's my, here's my number. Text me. Text me tonight. He goes, I can't believe I wasn't told. So there you have it. So it's not as eclectic. That's why podcasts like you, that's why you have all those books. That's why people come to us. It's not what we're saying in place of. We're saying conjunction with as an alternative. And I hate the word alternative because what we did was first. But the other guys coined it better. So now we're an alternative to medical model. And I love the medical model because I think they do some great things. Unfortunately, right now, they don't have anything for COVID-19. So the alternative model is your best option, clearly. And it would always be your best option to help prevent. I'm not, look, I'm not looking to walk in a room with 30 people with COVID-19 and breathe on me. I'm not being that uh, presumptuous. I'm just saying everybody does better, the better they take care of themselves. It's just like a house. The more you, you work on a foundation, the better chance you have it for lasting longer. So if you have a patient with COVID-19 or maybe, they, maybe you got them in that five-day window when they tested positive, they got sneezed on, they rush over to your office, what are you going to recommend they do to fight this battle? Well, of course, I'm going to adhere to everything, you know, social distance, stay home, quarantine, change your diet, you know, don't eat anything that's immunocompromising, any of the foods that we aforementioned, and give them three, four, five supplements and hope that it works to quench their cytokine storm, like vitamin D3 with K2. Great literature on that. We're not saying anything treats COVID-19. We're not going to make that statement. Nobody's allowed to make that statement. But I would still strongly recommend D3 with K2. Recommend, without question, zinc. Recommend L-glutathione, the master antioxidant, which is shown to ameliorate a million free radicals per molecule. In addition, something that people don't talk about as much called pro-resolving mediators. They're the next step there for the fish oils that allow for the resolution of inflammation. And they're a great choice. They're sort of not talked about enough in the functional medicine world. And guess what? I would do everything I can 
to get good bacteria in their gut and with a full spectrum probiotic. Nice. How about the keto diet? How does that enter into your practice? I use the keto diet often. Um, I'm a big keto supporter. Again, I always test. Now, the real question is, isn't that the keto is right for you? The question is, is it right for you and for what duration of time? Because we all know everybody benefits from the keto for three months. The question is, will it be 30 years? And we have to see how you adhere to it. And when we say keto, I always like to talk about clean keto, Mm. not dirty keto. Dirty keto is the sausage versus the organic chicken sausage. Hey, you know what I had? You know, I went and I had salami. It's keto. I go, I don't think that processed meat was what they meant. I think that you're (laughs) creative liberties with that. So big proponent of keto. A lot of examples, people in SIBO, and you're going to get a lot of people writing in, but I'm going to go for it. So we're going to pitter on the controversy. Everybody does that FODMAP. Mm. And I ask them, okay, which FODMAP? Because it's about 18 of them. Let me know which one works for you. Not a problem because it's low in carbohydrates and it's, it's an easier diet to be compliant with. FODMAP can be very difficult. So I use the keto a lot with gut issues. Now I make some changes. I may not give as much saturated fat or all the saturated fat in the keto. So I'll go more mono and polyunsaturated, but it's still keto-esque. Interesting. The idea of this fast mimicking diets are producing ketone bodies. And that's the sweet spot, as well you know, for the ketogenic diet. Beta-hydroxybutyrate is the gold medal winner. We know that it's an uncoupling molecule that opens up the cell membrane, and it's great for brain health and fuel, and it's been shown to help with athletic performance. So why wouldn't you want to get it either endogenously or exogenously? As a supplement, supplement form. Sure. Right. By the way, the keto diet's outstanding for neurodegenerative disease, and I treat a lot of concussions. When patients come in, I want them in ketosis immediately, so I give them MCT oil and ketone salts right away. Right. So let's, let's talk about why that's so beneficial, especially an acute concussion victim has the brain swelling. Um, I think I've had four of them in my life, one of them severe, hospitalized in critical care for a while, and... Um, you know, there was no discussion of diet. I probably got the orange sherbet on my plate and, uh, and the, uh, the dairy milk and the, uh, the, the sauce-covered uh, chicken breast, who knows what. But when you're, when you're in that acute phase and you have this uh, treatment modality that's now getting popular with, with people like you, maybe not in the, in the mainstream ER, uh, what's going on when you, when you consume ketones and MCT oil? Well, MCT oil is pure brain fuel. It's able to pass the membrane, go through the liver much quicker. So immediately getting fuel. Carbohydrates are a long involved process and it's not as potent. And the unfortunate thing with the carbohydrates, because if it's inflammatory component, you're actually causing inflammation to the brain. And that's the last thing you want to do with a concussion. So the keto diet is a true choice for concussions and other neurodegenerative diseases. The brain functions on fuel. It loves ketone bodies. It was made for that. Right. The sugar has inflammatory aspects to it. So if your brain's burning sugar, it's burning sort of a dirty fuel where the ketone bodies are uh, anti-inflammatory properties, all kinds of other uh, benefits to them, reducing inflammation, 
improving oxygen delivery. So you're kind of transitioning from a glucose burning brain to a brain that can burn ketones. Now, when you take the MCT oil, we know this to be like a catalyst to spur ketone production. So is that what you're talking about? I mean, the the brain's not able to burn uh, fat directly, right? It's burning ketones or glucose. Correct. It's burning those ketone bodies. And the MCT oil is known to have C8 and C10, which are much more energetic, whereas coconut, pure just coconut oil also has lauric acid, which is great, but C12. But it's a long-chain fatty acid, but it was named the medium-chain. The medium-chain triglycerides that come from the, uh, which is MCT oil, are the right structure and quickness to enable the brain to function properly because like you said it's clean fast fuel it's race car driver fuel so if you want to buy into this diet you've read some exciting books you're going to give it a try and hope that your brain will burn cleaner fuel you can actually transition from i guess if you're in a standard american dietary pattern you're burning 100 percent glucose in the brain because you're hardly ever making any ketones and you can move pretty far move that dial pretty far over to burning a majority of ketones? Absolutely. That, that is the sweet spot, that transition. And that, that, that's really health when you're able to make that transition. It's so interesting how we're seeing all these things, all these health benefits are based, the intermittent fasting, why you know, you're getting the autophagy, but how do you know when you're getting your autophagy when you start using fat versus carbohydrates? So again, fat is a potent, cleaner fuel versus carbohydrates. No one's saying you don't have to have carbs, but I just don't think you need a lot of them and you need good choice carbs. And they taste good. Apples are great. You know, you have a eight veggie drink and you want to put a green apple in, kumbaya, it's 80 calories, go for it, especially if you're a little active. But when people say I made a green drink, I put one green and six fruits, no bueno, not happening. Hey, I've got this great detox. Let me guess. How many fruits do you have? Oh, yeah, it's a fruit detox. So let me get, do you realize that sugar doesn't allow you to detox? Another way that adversely affects the brain, too much sugar, disproportionately affects your detoxification. Your liver can't break down toxins. What happens? Those toxins are recirculating and they recirculate and hit your brain amongst other organs. Whew. Right. The, the excess carb intake causing excess insulin production puts you in this uh, oxidative and inflammatory state, which is the basis for, for all disease. So I, I like how you made that point. The, the carbs are okay. They're, they're nutritious. They're healthy. But I think we have to um, clarify that when they're consumed in excess, then comes all kinds of problems. And this is the, the main problem in modern life is the excess carb intake driving excess insulin production. So, um, you know, the athletic types who can go and burn off their glycogen and then replenish with a fruit smoothie far less damaging than someone who's sitting at their desk going to Jamba Juice thinking they're, they're, they're having a healthy morning. Jamba Juice, oh my goodness. Yeah, this it's, show is it's, sponsored it's, by Jamba Juice. No, it's not. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny because, you know, sugar, again, being so, uh, it, it's, it's the most consumed drug in America. And um, people are hooked on sugar. So it's funny. Uh, well, I was in Canada when they made marijuana legal. And I didn't realize that that had happened. So uh, I asked the Uber driver, I said, why is there like a five-block line for the drugstore? He goes, 
marijuana legal. And I laughed and he goes, what's so funny, America? And I said, if they made sugar legal, it'd be a five mile line. But if they said avocados were on sale, there'd be three people online yeah. for it. And that's the problem. And that circles back to what we talked about with the comorbidities. It's all about good quality diet and the best diet for you genetically. Right. So you have these real live patients. You're not just sitting here studying things and researching. You got people coming through your door, these tough, hard nosed New Yorkers. They know what they, they, they know a lot. We, we love those guys. Uh, but you're saying you're putting them on a ketogenic diet. So walk me through uh, sort of your success formula to get someone to actually adhere to what you're saying during your, your office visit and have them you know, make progress over three months time, six months time, two years? Well, what we're finding out that enables people to make the most success is food lists and food recipes. If I just say 70% fat and 25% protein and 5% carbohydrate, they don't understand that. Even if they were to do grams, again, it would be, that is actually 70, 75% of your calories should come from fat, 20% come from protein, and about 5% from carbohydrates, give or take. Unless you decrease your carbo- unless you decrease your calories substantially and you go low, you can then also be in ketogenesis. But we don't like 1,200 calorie diets. So what we do is, again, we give food lists. We explain the difference. And I always use an analogy, have you ever had a whole pizza pie? And everybody at some point did the dominoes. One time in their life, even I did it. They did it. My question is, it took you the whole pie till you felt full. Yeah, yeah, it did. And how bad did you feel afterwards? Oh, no, I felt like crap. Right, your stomach hurt. You, you had to lay in bed the next day, and you knew that you shouldn't have eaten. Oh, my stomach, all this. If you had one avocado, which is one-fifth of the calories, say 500 to 2,500, if you will, did you feel sick? No. Did you, were you hungry? No. So you had a sense of fullness. Yes. So that's called satiety. It's not caloric fullness, it's nutrient fullness. So let's define satiety the right way. So what does that tell you? It's not calories, it's chemicals. It's not calories, it's quality. It's not calories, it's macronutrients. So now that we covered that, let's see macronutrients that give you satiety and enrich you with health. Because if you want to have something then, you have the calories now to have it. You know, if you wanted to have a cheesecake, which you shouldn't have, but the cheesecake that we have is cashew nut and chocolate and dark chocolate and everything like that. People say you're eating that and you're able to keep your body fat and you know, you're not someone who runs. And I'm like, it's chemicals. It's not calories. That's rudimentary. Now, granted, if you're doing what Lance Armstrong did in the Tour de France or Michael Phelps, it's at a certain point it gets to calories. But Let's be real. How many people are walking in my office named Michael Phelps or Lance Armstrong? There's only one or two of those guys in the world ever. So that's a very unique athlete. That's a great quote, man. Chemicals, not calories. So when you consume that avocado, uh, tell me what's going on in the gut, in the brain. How does this satiety uh, phenomenon occur? Well, that monounsaturated fat is doing a great job in your gut. It's actually a perfect fuel for your gut. It's actually not irritating what we call your microvilli. 
and it's your stomach or your gut is communicating with your brain and telling your brain everything is copacetic. Sugar, it's a drug. It's the most consumed drug. Again, and it's very damaging to the gut lining. So the gut lining is interesting. You have the immune system at the bottom. You got this mucous membrane on top and you got this microvilli. If you damage these shaggy carpets, which grab nutrients, you're now at a mucous membrane. If you damage that mucous membrane, you're at an immune system. That poses an issue. Fuel. What's good fuel for your gut? Fat. Get what's good fuel for pathogens in your gut? Sugar. <laughs> so you're Sugar, feeding the bad guy. Uh, so would you else? come in your house if you, had, uh, if, if you had house invaders? Would you feed your family or would you feed the invaders? When you give them carbohydrate, you're feeding the invaders. You forgot about your family. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> you're giving them a hot. You're giving the the burglars a hot fudge Sunday. Absolutely, they'll fall asleep and get lethargic, and you can overtake them. Exactly. So yeah. So the sugar goes in, and what does it do to the microvilli? Uh, how does it well, damage it? It damages microvilli because you know sugar is inflammatory. In addition to that, it actually feeds all the pathogens, bacteria, viruses, and the like. They love it. So we don't really love sugar. Our brain loves sugar because, again, it works with the reward center of our brain. It's a drug, but our body doesn't really like sugar. It processes it quickly and passes it out. By the way, one of the quickest ways to fatty liver or non-alcoholic fatty liver is sugar. 50% of people who walked in in a study with COVID-19 had non-alcoholic fatty liver. By the time they were out of the hospital, it was 75.2%. So the liver is under attack all the time. One of the worst things you can do for the liver, right? It makes, we think about it, non-alcoholic fatty liver. By the way, alcohol, carbohydrate and fat, carbohydrate. Oh, and, and here's what happened. And here's why we think fat is a foe and not a friend. It's very simple. In the 70s, the U.S. government wanted universal health care and they wanted to stop heart attacks. So they got all the cardiologists in the world together and they said, how do we stop it? And the cardiologists at the time in their infinite wisdom said, Fat is a foe. It is not a friend. Why? They based it on one article, well, which is not enough. One article in 1965 at Harvard University with three researchers. 50 years later, 2015, those three researchers have perished. They revealed that those mm-hmm. researchers were paid off by a sugar company to say that sugar was okay and fat was bad. So everything we've always said about sugar and fat that people talk about was wrong because we were lied to. So look at the new literature and look at the new literature of fat versus carbohydrates, drastically different. And again, there are some addendums to the fat and not for everybody, maybe to the keto diet, but certainly good quality fat is your friend. It is not your fault. Yeah, that's a pretty heavy uh, reference you just made. You can learn more details about it in great books like Denise Minger's Death by Food Pyramid. Um, I don't know if that's the Minnesota coronary experiment that you were referring to or connected in some way, because I've read about that oh. where you know they, yeah. they dug up in some guy's basement uh, you know, files that were uh, withheld, uh, information distorted. That guy Ansel Keys gets a really bad rap for falsifying science and then presenting it to the United States government, the McGovern Commission, the former senator. And all of a sudden, we had this dietary policy pounded down our throats for decades that went unquestioned uh, with research falling in line to finding out ways to uh, call saturated fat bad and kind of forgetting about the uh, contributory factor of sugar. 
And even today, it still hangs on with people that aren't living and breathing uh, health and science. And boy, I'm, I'm just crossing my fingers, hoping, you know, in five years time, 10 years time, everyone's going to acknowledge that we were flat out wrong for, for years and decades and, and need to unwind this. Well, you know, I don't have a problem as things evolve. But when it started out, it's a strong word, but started out on a lie. That's an issue because we all evolve. I'm sure you train differently now than you did before because you know hmm. more through life's experience and literature experience. But if somebody told you, you know, the fastest way to win a cycling race is you cycle backwards and let everybody cycle forward, you'd be pretty perturbed at this point. And that's essentially what they said. You know, we've been much better off if people would look at literature and, and understanding and go. And the problem is, uh, and a lot of practitioners don't read the new stuff. And they change is hard. Because if you have to change in yourself, it's one thing. But now you're asking somebody to change. That look that that patient gives you, where do you realize you're asking me to change what I've done? I've made it this far. Mm-hmm. And my answer is what you've done has driven you into the office. What I'm going to do is drive <laughs> you out of the office. Your call. You still have choice. And that takes a lot away. Now, I'll help you. Your choice. Just think of jumping out of a plane. You're up here now. You want to go? Let's do it. I'll do it with you. If not, it's not a problem. I wouldn't jump out of a plane. I'm afraid of heights, but I, I hope everybody gets the, uh, the analogy. Well, that's a good distinction you make there because people that are, uh, you know, living and breathing their life's work, doing the best they can with the research and the tools they have available and making a, you know, devoted effort to help people be healthier. Uh, what can you say about that? We're going to continually evolve. Um, just like the athletic training example. Absolutely. I wish I'd known uh, what I know now back then because we did things, uh, a lot of things really wrong and we were highly, you know, best intentions. We're eating that grain-based diet because everyone said that's the way to go. That's the, the fuel your muscles need is that brown rice and that lentil soup. Uh, but yeah, starting with a lie or getting, uh, you know, paid off by uh, special interests, that's the kind of thing that's, you know, a disgrace and um, these people's names shall live forever in disgrace uh, for, you know, bringing, bringing that, uh, that, that bad energy to the world in, in, in favor of uh, personal gain or I guess in a lot of cases ego or preserving your reputation. You mentioned how people are so close-minded. Mark Manson's book, Your, your Neighbor There in New York City, you know, the, the best-selling author, he said, you know, um, the research shows that people basically almost never change their mind no matter what. And you're fighting a losing battle until someone's open and receptive. That's what's cool about your thing is you got a patient in your room they, they, that's showing a little bit of openness and receptivity because they're, they're paying you and they, they've you know, scheduled an hour to, to go see you and try to get healthier. So I, I would assume your success rate with getting people to adopt a dietary transformation is, is much better than the guy you're sitting next to on the subway. It's still probably you know, a challenge. It's a funny thing that the best, these, what we're doing now are great because people hear it and it's a podcast and you're not that guy that's locally in the neighborhood that they saw you at the gym or something. (laughs) They don't know that you're just coming back from Dubai and talking to like a thousand docs. So this is great. And I really appreciate being on and I really appreciate that you message everything and being such a, you know, competitive athlete like you were and holding a couple of world records some really cool ones too, man. That was really cool. Looked you up. Love it. Thanks, man. And um, it gives every one of us the opportunity 
to have a, a platform and to bring value to people's lives. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can't, you can't take anything with you and, but somebody else does write your tombstone. <laughs> oh man, that's a great finish. I, I love catching up with you. You're the stat king of the podcast world. I don't think anyone's topped that in, in, in this, uh, this hour show. Uh, so let's, uh, talk about where we can get your book and how to connect with you. If you, uh, if you're out there, uh, the super highway to health is now, now available, right? The Super Highway to Health will be available in October. There was a little delay. Okay. COVID-19 has done it. Yeah. Uh, Super Highway to Health, Seven Steps to Optimizing the Gut-Brain Axis, Dr. Robert Silverman. Real easy. My website is Dr. Robert Silverman. My Facebook, do a lot of social media like you, is Dr. Robert Silverman. We've got a podcast, which you are now cordially invited to come on. It's called Proven Health Alternatives. So you let me know when you can. And we'll just knock it out of the park and share the keto life with all of my followers and everybody and start imbuing people with enthusiasm to understand that health as well. Very nice. Dr. Robert Silverman killing it. Thank you for spending time. Da, 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 da. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners. No dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no-dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the Primal Path and want to help others live primally too, then visit PrimalHealthCoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit PrimalHealthCoach.com today to learn more.